How does a kid from Ferguson, Missouri, end up as a creative director at Google? Well, that's what we'll be discussing today. Our guest is Julian Logic Gillian. Logic is one of the most dynamic people in Web3. He has dropped many collections. He's one of the few people that I know that actually still has a board ape. Uh, um, just a really dynamic figure in the space. And in this conversation, we muse about visiting Japan. Uh, Japan was actually one of the first places that I visited outside of the country. Um, he tells us what took him to Japan. We discuss his path to embracing his creativity. We talk about some of the initiatives he's created, such as one that teaches Japanese to creatives of color. We talk about his journey from being an excellent student, deciding not to go into basketball or to take the safe path, but instead to follow his passion and to create art. We discuss uh, negotiating, asking for your worth, but also expanding on your horizons beyond what you think you might be capable of to what your real calling is. And so I think this is another fantastic conversation for Proof of Culture, and I hope you all enjoy it. All right. Well, Logic, thank you for, for taking time to join me to chat. Um, I'll have to admit that you are probably one of the more fascinating people in Web3. Uh, so I appreciate you agreeing to share your journey, um, as I mentioned before. So talk to me about your journey to Web3 and tell me who Logic is and what your origin story is. Oh, wow. I got into Web3 in 2017 because I bought Bitcoin and Litecoin and a few others because uh, I, I was a part of the first bear market because I was in Japan and I went into my Coinbase account and all my Bitcoin was like half of what I put in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I really needed it because your boy was out there for a month struggling. And around 20, uh, the tail end of 2020, I think it was a, right before November, Lady Phoenix introduced me to OpenSea on Clubhouse. So I was a part of like the first wave on Clubhouse. I actually and... remember you from Clubhouse. I'll get to that because I remember you oh, yeah. going into one of your <laughs> one of your Japanese rooms and We'll talk about it later, but it's it's interesting that you started on House as well. Yeah, so uh, Lady Phoenix introduced me to it in one of the rooms. I used to run a, a community that was that would in, help artists retrofit their their portfolios for corporate America. So I was like auditing um, uh, portfolios and resumes, and then also I ran this thing called How to Make It as an Artist, and uh, and then I end up turn, changing it into How to Make It as an Artist in NFTs. And I onboarded yeah. thousands and thousands of people through that. I was so already gung-ho about the technology. I had been in, I had already been a, a part of tech and internet culture since 2005. Um, when I was 15, I started freelance website designing and I had like, um, I was a professional by the time I was 16. Um, I got a job offer to design websites from Blizzard Entertainment when I was 17 before I went to college. Uh, but I was like flipping domains, selling web hosting and stuff like that when I was in high school. And I was just a part of this subculture that most people didn't know anything about. And I got introduced through that through gaming, mm -hmm. um, where I would go to like land parties and stuff of that nature. But I think one of those things that kind of gave me my look, my my prowess is just I, I'm from Ferguson, Missouri, originally um, in St. Louis. And just growing up as a black man, black boy there. Uh, you just kind of feel second rate all the time. I didn't know to feel that way until we moved to the boondocks or a predominantly white neighborhood when I was in middle school. 
And I got to assess the, the cultural differences between predominantly black culture and white cultures. And I was exceptional as a student and people just didn't put respect on your name or didn't think they didn't really expect things of you. But yeah. one of the things that the same things I got to see was just because they had more resources, they make them happier. And then you can kind of see it really showed me just the difference in in access to resources when because I, I, I play AU basketball. So I would still go to Ferguson the Hoop and my family still was in disenfranchised communities. So I was like in this whiplash of, of a cycle on a weekly basis, three days a week in Ferguson, Missouri. But then I'll go back to the, the, the suburbs where I, I went to school. And then the weekends I'm with my cousins and, you know, and you can just get to see the up, like the difference. Right. And for me, I got to see that white wasn't right. And that because those resources didn't make them better or that they were happier because at the baseline of it all, no one was really doing what they wanted to do in life anyway. Everybody was kind of following this blueprint of a structure. Right. Uh, essentially, my name Logic came from the idea of unlearning and relearning everything that was taught to me. I spent a lot of time just being a rebel, I guess, or just having to really be hard-headed and trust the, the beat that was playing in my head versus everything, whether it was white America, my parents, you know, to, so I can be palatable, uh, viral and... Uh, I really just had to like lean into the the thing that I had to believe in, which is where the whole idea of logic came from, because I got ridiculed a lot uh, just for my approach. And I knew I was smart enough to, you know, to do it. Sure. Well, how do, you, how do you think that that prepared you for for this, like where you are today? Because it's uh, like you moved around a lot. Uh, I mean, growing up in Ferguson, that's got to be, I mean, now we know Ferguson for a different reason. And so it, it certainly has a connotation, if you will. So how do you think all of that, all of those things that you experienced prepared you for, for where you are now? Yeah, it, it was a combination of things. One, I found, I, I found myself co-switching. I think I was like 17 or whatever. I was at a party and I, I heard the reverb when I closed the door in the bathroom. And I heard the way I articulated my words, my vernacular was different. And then I had to do a lot of self-reflecting, like, who do I want to be? Because it's kind of- when, when you say it was different, how was it different? How were you, were you, were you not speaking the way that you're speaking now? And if not, why? I, I think I had to find a happy medium because mm -hmm. just the way I was speaking didn't mean it wasn't me. Just the way, you know, tossing around like, what's up nigga? You know what I'm saying? And, and the casual thing. And then be like, what's up dude, you know? And I, I found myself doing that in different circles. And I didn't like that because it was inconsistencies internally. Sure. So it, it wasn't like something that was overnight, but I had to choose who I wanted to be or how I wanted to present myself and those things. So like, even when my parents want to correct my English, I will proceed to say it wrong anyway. Like I understand that the way that's the way you're supposed to say it, but I don't want to say it this way. And I started to realize that it wasn't necessarily just the, the way you dress at work or the, the way you make people feel comfortable. It was all it was all up here and how you cross your T's and dot your I's. Right. I think one of the things is, I, as I got to see white America and black America pretty much like in, in this parallel comparison all the time, I got to see that no matter how old you were, no one had the answers. Mm. And I didn't want to be confined to this thing that I didn't identify with. So I started moving with longevity in mind at a very early age. And I think it was just based on seeing my people, our people fucked up. And but also we had joy and then the, the things that we manifested through, you know, our culture. Right. And then, you know, I also got to see 
the other side where leveraging those resources and entering those rooms and is all based on relationships and stuff like that. So I, I think it, it, it helped me because I just got to learn those certain nuances in which to, to deliver certain things. Mm-hmm. So what that did was, I think, had I not moved to the suburb, like the, the boondocks, which was called West County in, in St. Louis, I don't think I would have been able to navigate uh, places like Leo Burnett or Google or anything like that. But also, I had great mentors. I, I did an internship called the Marcus Grand Project. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of Black creative directors or Black-owned agencies. So it was a boot camp for uh, people of color and women to get into the world of advertising. So I got to see black, black professionalism at the highest level. And I did this while I was in college, getting my degree in animation. Uh, so while I was doing that, I realized that I didn't want to, I'm, I'm, I've always been on my track to, to create my own version of Disney, which I'm still working on to be the Tim Burton in the whole game. At the end, we got interviewed by the likes of like Wyatt and Kennedy. Yeah. And other agencies. But I end up in the placement for that, that boot camp was like 90% at the time. And I end up landing at a Black-owned agency called Common Ground. What I find so fascinating is there's, there's so many overlaps. Like I started my career at an agency as well. I was a project manager, but that is how I learned about technology was you oh, know, nice. the day when you're building banner ads and building websites. Just <laughs> as, a, as a project manager, just interacting with the account team, the creative team, yeah. the, the technical team, I was just soaking up all of this understanding and I know that you've you've been at is it Havas and Leo Burnett uh, and and some other agencies as well. How does a kid from Ferguson end up as an art director at Havas? Well, I ask because to your point, when I was a project manager, there were no black creatives at any of the agencies. And I worked at MLM, I worked at Footcone and Belding, I worked at Zentropy Partners. Uh, never saw any black people in any of the creative and and a creative director was just unheard of. So talk to me a little bit about that path and how, because it sounds to me like you were very deliberate, very intentional in the choices that you made. So talk to me about the progression from Keaton Ferguson and then moving to, as you call it, the boondocks, but then ending up at these these pretty impressive agencies and, and especially as an art director. Yeah, no, for sure. So I played division one basketball at Southeast Missouri State. And I was at this this divide of trying to find a school that had an art program and a basketball program. And I really had to fight my dad on this because it took him two years to co-sign for me to go. I lost my scholarship to the school I was at because I was so darn called going to an art school that I ended up playing for a school for free that I was already getting. I had a scholarship for the year before. Wow. And I remember my dad trying to get me to go to a D3 or a D2 to play. And it was in Missouri. And I literally told him, I was like, I'll sell drugs before I go to these schools. Because it wasn't about getting a degree. The degree was completely irrelevant because I got to see the market in a way because I was on the internet at a, such a young age. So when I, I realized that the that the degree was completely obsolete for a person like me, uh, because who are you going to hire? Somebody with a great resume, I mean, a great portfolio to do your creative or somebody who has a degree and a shitty portfolio. Like it didn't make sense, right? So I knew to be the person I wanted to be, I had to leave St. Louis. So... When I went to Chicago, it, it has a really amazing art community. Mm-hmm. And since it's limited, and this is all going to, to answer your question, it has uh, a city of broad shoulders where we have very limited uh, media outlets. So all the artists incubate. And it's a very strong community in which people give you the benefit of the doubt that come to your performance or your show at least twice, but you got the show improved. And being in that environment, I learned 
to just be kind of relentless in nature in my creativity. I remember I was trying to get some more money within because I wanted to stay at the agent, the the black owned agency, and uh, my creative director Rob, and I, I was like, hey, I, I I've been really putting forth an effort to to redefine how we approach social media, and I he spoke for an hour, but the only thing I heard him say because he didn't have to say nothing else, he was like, okay, this is cool, but do you have any offers from anywhere else? Uh, so I was like, no. He's like, uh, have you, you looked at Were you looking to get a, a salary increase? Or yes, I was, so you I, went in Casper and they wanted to know if you had an existing offer, which means that's the only way they were going to yeah. play ball to give you a raise is if you had an. an yeah, he's like, then why I, yeah, you're not a high commodity, right? Wow. And I, I understood the idea of putting forth efforts. So he spoke for another hour and I, and I didn't need to hear shit else. Like, so. Two weeks later, I come back with a, a job offer of fifty five k from another. Wait, where did you get the where did you get the, the the offer from? Did you go out and actively seek another role? It's all about how you package it. Sure. And I had all these brands on my my portfolio, and I had an offer. Literally in two weeks, I had an offer in two weeks, and and I came back, and the guy who gave me all that, you know, we don't have an offer. What are we going to offer you? Uh, why would we give you more? He was like, don't take the offer yet. We'll be back. They couldn't match it. They couldn't match the 55000 But when I got there, I didn't know what the fuck an art director was because like on agency, I was a junior art director, but I was so scrappy that I was never a part of a campaign from start to finish. I see. And yeah, so I didn't really understand the, the whole idea of creating a, a campaign with legs, but I knew my creative output. I I, I kind of, when I got that 55K, I got my first art studio. And the whole point of me working there when you said I was deliberate was that I knew I didn't want to get pigeonholed into multicultural advertising mm. uh, because they'll do, like you only know how to speak to this specific demographic and then you'll only be known for this thing. Right. So my whole point of going to Havas, I wouldn't have never been able to touch so much IP in a such a short amount of time. So it was, and I would have never been able to see myself and a CEO, I would have never been able to see myself in a creative director. I wouldn't have never been able to see myself in success. By the time I got to these places, I kind of had a more of a confidence about the way I presented myself in the meetings. Sure. So how did you go from that to Google? Because at Google, you were creative director, right? You made the jump from art director to creative director. Talk to me about how, how that right about and maybe some key lessons that that you learned while there because it, it seems to me like it was after uh, correct me if i'm wrong was it, was it after google that you were like okay i'm i'm done i'm going off to do my yeah actually it was it was actually it was leo burnett i was, thought I, I was i knew that was gonna be my last agency mm -hmm. so i learned it, we had a mutual separation from Havas, mm -hmm. uh, and it was like we won't say anything negative but they were like you thrive over there but it seems like this is more com like it's harder for you to really catch the wave in this this environment. Uh -huh. And they were like, you'll thank us later. So we separated. And I remember right before that, I'm, I had a conversation with my dad and I was like, yeah, I'm giving, I'm giving my art 100, 150% and I'm giving Havas 80%. And this shows like the construct of how will we look at money. My dad was like, 55K is a good paying job, so you don't wanna mess it up. And I remember I was like, respectfully pause, fuck this job. But you know, I think that's what parents do, right? They, they yeah, no, but I think, but 55K in our community, 
is a decent salary. It's a decent salary if you're not looking above and beyond. You could have settled for that, right? Yes. Didn't. Um, but I was like, I can't let this hold me for 55000 just because I got access to the table to see how much 55 k was really. Right. Especially when I left the 33. So after all that, uh, I went to another agency called Blast Radius, neither here nor there. Uh, I quit there, and and then I was, got hired at Leo Burnett. And when I got hired at Leo Burnett, uh, they wanted me to work on Marlboro, which is, you know, tobacco. Sure. I was like, yeah, I'm not working on menthol, and yeah, I'm not selling that to my people. Right. And so I worked on dip. I don't know no black people that dip, so my conscience didn't clear. But the whole point was to get my foot in the door. Because after I worked at Habas and I got to see, I used that as my foot in the door. And also just me being able to see, I got to really see power structures. So yeah. when I went to Japan, I waited to my, my last check cleared at Blast Radius. And I called my, I emailed my CD two days later and was like, I'm not coming back to the office. I'm staying in Japan for two more weeks. So when you start to realize there's people and ideas, like my, my chief creative officer, was not upset, he respected, I had to do what I needed to do for myself. Right. So there was no hard feelings there. I really just used it, again, to get my foot in the door to see how I can leverage their resources to do whatever I wanted. But when I was working on Skull, uh, with the dip that I was working on, um, I got asked to audit some ideas. One idea was framed around, it was very not aspirational at all, like this, Person spent everything he had at the strip club because tomorrow he'll figure it out. And then he was drinking, he was drinking Crystal, which they said they don't make their product for black people and it was geared towards black people. And he was eating fried chicken at the club. So what I- Did they ask you to audit this? Yeah, so I'm looking at these ideas, right? So I'm like, I'm like tripping. Like I'm looking at these ideas and I highlight them. So I started circulating the, the, the white paper of ideas to other people of color in the agencies. Like, am I tripping? Right. Like, is this as bad as I think it is? So what I, I learned was when I was talking to the creative directors that were working on it, they were trying to keep it quiet in a way where I was having these one on ones. And I realized that creative directors actually didn't have power. They were actually had other people that they had to answer to. So I used that opportunity to kind of I went from a, a senior art director to jump over all the creative directors. And now I'm having one on ones with the CEO of, of Leo Burnett and other, you know, leaders in, in, in the system to the point where uh, I was like, OK, I'm starting to see I read I red pill this shit. I can see how the blueprint of this agency is working, especially at this level where who answers the who, what's really important, what is the agenda? So did, did you think that at that moment, did you think that maybe you, you saw the structure laid out in a way that many people I don't think has everybody pretty much just being the cog in the machine. Did you see that maybe this wasn't it for you? I had already came, I had already came to Leo as a shark trying to smell the blood in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, because my thing wasn't to be the, the creative, the art director for dip. You know, I didn't care about that. It was more so for more money and access. Because especially in Chicago, if you worked at Leo Burnett, you got access. Mm -hmm. And so when when I realized that culturally, if we have our leaders that are, that are not tapped into what's going on in the world, like a creative director should know Chris Stahl shunned black people from consumption. Right. Uh, 
a creative director should be culturally aware. Yes, right? Because then I realized that I was outside. Like, I had been to South by Southwest. I met Nipsey Hussle. I met Childish Gambino. I'm where culture is popping, why it pops. I was there. I'm seeing it. Everyone else is cherry-picking shit off the uh, headlines. Right. And, and, I, and I used that to leverage. I created a subsidiary agency called Naomi. And Naomi, we named it after the wife of Leo Burnett. And I had a SWAT team of four, four to five people. And I end up having so much autonomy. I didn't even have time for school anymore. And and we also activated culturally relevant events because again, this was me. I didn't. I took the same notes I got from moving from Ferguson to the Boondocks and realizing that the white people or the people with those abundant resources did not take advantage advantage of them. The same thing happened at Leo Burnett. We we in a sky, the 21st floor to the 30th floor. We got all these empty rooms, communal rooms, and I'm creating some cultural relevancy within the agency. I got to see. It's just people and ideas. Most people weren't pushing those narratives. So as I was bringing in new business, working on bringing in new business, salvaging relationships, doing cultural stuff, and literally just, I didn't have a boss anymore. Uh, I got headhunted by Google and I didn't apply to Google and it was for a creative director position. It's all about crossing your T's and dotting your eyes. I, like I said at the beginning, I knew that I, I had to keep a rawness so I could have a perspective but also you have to package your perspective to the point where people can digest it and understand what it is you're saying uh, and be able to play that spectrum. So when I got hired, uh, headhunted, my portfolio, when you went to JulianGilliam.com, didn't have commercial work on the front. It had my performance art. It had my characters that I brought to life, et cetera, et cetera. Those are my things that Google saw in my portfolio and they hired me for commercial stuff. Proof of Culture is brought to you in part by Zora, the place to bring your imagination on chain. Visit Zora.co to get started. Connect, click, create. And now back to our interview. So talk to me about that trip to Japan. My first trip to Japan was complete culture shock for me. And actually some of the only black people that I saw were like dancers in Weno Park break dancing and be like, they'd be like yelling in Japanese, but with swag, you know what I mean? It, I, it was just so awesome to me. But one thing that I really recognized about the Japanese was they would love the black culture. Like for the first time, I saw people who had a healthy appreciation for hip hop and jazz was huge when I went. I saw Japanese girls with dreads. I mean, yeah. I was talking to them and they would tell me how long it took them to be in the salon and get their hair. I mean, it was just like, it seemed to me like a really wonderful appreciation. I'm curious about what you saw in Japanese culture and what you took away from it. Yeah, first and foremost, coming from where I came from, I realized I ain't no shit. And I knew I didn't know anything, right? And again, I, I, I realized that I was starting to cannibalize my vision based in Chicago in a Midwestern perspective. Hmm. Um, we, we perform a lot, especially as a people from a, a point of a point of ignorance. And it's not necessarily our fault all the time, just kind of where we're positioned. But what do you mean by that? What do you mean that we perform from a, a point of ignorance? I'm curious. Meaning like we are subjugated to our bubbles because that's the way systematically is, is set up for us to, to be that way, whether it's food deserts, whether it's access to uh, income or just financial literacy, 
So I'm looking at everything as an opportunity to learn, to digest. So uh, I just knew I had to put myself in positions, not necessarily just to to try to make money, but to just to shut the fuck up. Like, I went to Japan to shut the fuck up. That was my whole point. And also, traveling is so imperative for us because in, in, in Chicago or St. Louis, when I speak, my vernacular puts me in a certain demographic, certain area. Oh, you're less educated. You come from this place, blah, blah, blah. So what it did for me, it gave me so much. So when I went to Japan, uh, I did a month there. And I really went with no agenda. I did Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, Hiroshima, Himeji, uh, uh, uh Miyajima, and maybe one other. And I just went to be present. And when I was there, I unfollowed like 90% of the people I follow on Instagram because watching a Nihonjin or a Japanese person drink coffee in Kyoto was way more exciting than death scrolling on my phone. And uh, uh, what this did for me, it just opened up. I just started thinking on more of a global mentality versus just like, what are people doing in Chicago? What are people doing in St. Louis? Because no one's checking for people in St. Louis and Chicago. And, and for that world resonance that I want and yearn for, I want to get into cultural truths, universal truths, and, and not just my bubble of a truth. And especially if I want to create my version of Disney, like I kept, that was like my beacon. That was my, my vibe. So I didn't speak Japanese when I went there and I was able to navigate Japan based on vibes and alone. I was doing live paintings at nightclubs in Japan in a month. I had access to photo studios. I did photo shoots. I was painting. I just had access to these things, speaking Japanese or not. So it was just me having a frame of reference, uh, of, of just life. And uh, it, it was like, those things are priceless. Like when you people get into the boardrooms, yeah, you can research the, the, the product and the client, but also you need to have something honest to pull from. And that's that keen perspective that no one else can replicate. And doing that, you become an anomaly in a room, become irreplaceable in a room. And I pulled that from basketball. And I ain't on this, I'm sure I've just been talking forever, but in basketball, I was a standout and I didn't like to come out the game. And anyone can recognize this. If we're in a crunch, we need points, and your ass can't shoot, you coming out the game. If, we, if we're in a crunch, and we're down by five, and we need to put defense, we need to implement defense to stop them from scoring, and your ass can't play defense, you coming out the game. I didn't want to come out the game. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. So, and, and, it, and I applied the same type of thinking at Google. I applied the same thing type of thinking in corporate America where I didn't want to, I wanted to be, you got to be irreplaceable. What I love about what you just said was, was something that I've, I've always thought is like, I always tell particularly uh, black and brown kids, the, the first moment that you can get out of this country to travel, do it. Uh, because it's really important for us to see how our culture influences the world. Like I remember the first time I was in Berlin and I was in a cab I heard this Tupac song that I'd never heard before. I was like, wait, I grew up in the U.S. This is the first time I'm hearing this Tupac song. And then I hear like this bass coming down the street. And I, I just knew it was a bunch of brothers coming down. There was a bunch of Turkish dudes in the car. And I just had to stop and like talk to them. And they really identified with hip hop. They identified with the struggle, with the story. And we just became fast friends. And I was like, this is... This is why we need to get out of our comfort zones to really yeah. have like a global 
worldview. Because unless you have that, then like you said, you're just sitting in St. Louis or you're sitting in the Bronx or you're sitting wherever you're at and you think, God, is this everything? Like this can't, yeah. this can't be life and it's not. But you don't know that unless you get you get out of, of, of where you are. No, no, Theo, you know, the point of even with the lock situation, I remember going to the Bait and Ape store and uh, I ran into Smino. You know, Smino's an artist. Uh, he's from St. Louis, actually, then he moved to Chicago. When he was there, uh, uh, he was headlining a show, sold out in Japan. He's a brother and I knew his manager. And then that's how Smino and I got cool or whatever. And we we were all, and my homie Taylor too, so we all got, I had my, I was growing my hair out. Uh, Smino got crazy hair. My other homie got crazy hair. And we walk into the Bathe and Ape store and it, and Bathe and Ape, if people don't know, it's like, they they really tethered to like Pharrell Williams and oh, yeah. Ego, all them hip hop culture for sure. And three of them in there had like locks, right? And I remember like walking around the store and the the neon gene, the Japanese people were like kind of, it wasn't like they were following us, we were still in something. They were kind of like looking at our style and our hair. Yeah. And I could tell, and, and you know, I just kind of like, I just like, I just took it in. And as I walked out the building, there was one of the, the, the Japanese guys with the locks and I just dapped him up on the way out and just follow his That's face. That's the his day. <laughs> but it made me feel good. It was like, yo, we really out here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, that, that, that's real. Okay. Last question on, on Japan. So you come back. I want to talk about briefly the, the Chiba Center. You established uh, for black and brown uh, creators to learn Japanese. And I'm wondering, what was the emphasis for that? And are, is it still happening? How is it doing? Tell, tell me about it. I funded it through crypto. I dedicated 30K to it when I did my last drop and that money is dried up. <laughs> so we're working on, you know, reformatting. We had somebody doing five days a week, uh, three classes a day, and that's expensive. Yeah. And so we're working on, you know, grants and stuff like that so we can, you know, sustain that. Uh, when you, people are taking something for free, I don't think they realize how much money and effort it really takes to make something like that happen. I think people take stuff for granted, but also it's been going on for two years and how it started is pretty awesome. Actually, shout out to my homie Rico Sensei, Richard is his name. He actually, we actually met for the first time. And for me, it was kind of passive. I was speaking at the Apple store on Michigan Avenue and he saw from the street and he came in to listen to me speak. So he just, he loves culture. He just immerses himself in those things. Like he lived in Japan for like two or three years, not in Tokyo. And I had this 3000 square foot studio, Florida ceiling windows, crazy. Dang. And during the pandemic, he offered, he was like, hey, would you need some help with your studio or anything? And also, are you interested in learning Japanese? Cause you know, your name. And I had already been looking for classes. He came over to my studio, he helped sweep and cleaned up. We cleaned up the studio. And then he taught me Japanese for the first session of like three hours. Wow. And then I was like, this is crazy. And he was like, yeah, I'm down to teach you Japanese. And he was like, you can do one day, two days, or three days. And I, I was like, give me the three days. And after like the second and third time, I was like, bro, how much you want me to pay you for this? You know, cause like you coming over your time spent. And he was like, just give me a job in the future. That's all he said. Wow. After about a month and a half, two months, I started, I can, I started picking it up. And he was coming to my house three days a week. And we'll be doing for two to three hour sessions. Wow. And I was onboarding at Google, so I wasn't on the hook for any client work at the time. And Clubhouse was just coming out and all this stuff. And he was teaching me. So during the pandemic, we were facilitating 
Japanese classes three days a week in my art studio in person. Wow. And and then Clubhouse came out. Then we were able to open up to a global market because you can, you know, say Japanese intro for black people. Yeah. And we started getting people all over. And that's how I started. That's how, and then I dropped my project, The Plug, where we made a, a substantial amount of money. And I do, I used that and I donated 30K. It's pretty much to give it to Richard. So he had to go back to work immediately so he can continue to teach Japanese. How many people would you say that you, you taught? So we've had about twelve to 1,500 people that have come through Chiba Center probably from Clubhouse to Discord and all that type of stuff. We're doing peer-to-peer. -peer, we're improving everything. We're even working on like a pay-to-teach pay mechanic where we can log how long you did a, a study session. And also we're looking for a treasury so we can actually have dedicated senseis like Richard because Richard had to go back to work. I think it's such a fantastic initiative. I want to talk about your work because you've done the plug, done, I think it's Juice Box, and I was reading a little bit about them, and I just saw that movie, uh, They Clone Tyrone. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been, I've been holding off, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there's definitely a lot of subtext that I find very similar to the undercurrents of your work about food, and lower income communities and what, what gets pushed into the community as opposed to yeah. what gets- like exploitation. Yeah. Exactly. And so I see a lot of similarities there. I just wanted you to talk about each of these collections and, and the meaning behind them and, and how, how you would like for them to be perceived out in the world. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I think at the baseline of it is juice. Like even with the plug, you gain juice, which is the battery pack. And you only can become the plug if you got juice in the game, right? Like even the movie Juice, you got the juice now, right? Mm -hmm. And juice is access to, to resources, people, places. And the idea of juice is dedication. The reason why I created the plug in the first place, one, is because we were a part of a microwave society, like you think they're like the way they appropriated culture. But when I created it, it was the idea of sleeping on couches. A lot of people like the reference of sleeping on couches for your dreams, and you only get juice by putting in work. Chicago taught me a lot about that, where you only get respect if respect is put in and time is put in, and if you put yourself in position to win. And it was the idea of putting access on a pedestal, whether it was being an influencer or being this artificial thing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be artificial, because when you got 100% fruit juice, that's like that real shit where uh, you're not manufactured. So it's like this idea of, you know, looking at everything's in perspective and you can change, you can change the juice that you drink, essentially. So in, in, a, in a distribution, it was just like this, like that black exploitation of being fed bullshit. And everyone has different, different levels of the shit that they are consuming. And you can change it. And I don't think most people know they can change it. And I just kind of like, you know, made Hustleberry Blue and blah, blah, blah. And it was really just, a, and then I made the bodega because in, in, in those food droughts, I just remember not being able to see. And I don't even know, like just being blind to everything. And I, at some point in my life, I I got a breath. I, got, I, came, I came to the surface and I was like, oh, there's more. Like you said, is this it, right? And and like my mom has, you know, since been on her journey, um, you know, at the age of 56 to see more. And 
and she's been inspired by my sister and I. And it was just this thing of just kind of like, you don't have to accept the bullshit they feeding you. And and it, and I, I even got one I haven't even dropped yet. It's called Oppressos. And it's, uh, it's Government's Oppressos is a cereal box. And it wow. says, eat the cereal. When's that coming out? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm going I'm to finish animate. I'm going to send it to you. It's like, I love it. I have a print of it and everything. Um, but it was just, this, you know, just because, it, it, you know, most people don't know. Like, I remember being at Soho House in Chicago and I was with this woman who worked in advertising, this white woman. I, I have to say race because it's important. I remember being with this white woman and because she my homie or whatever. Cool. And we were sitting there and she's like, I was like, yeah, look at, you know, Soho House. And I remember my cousin came with me to Soho and I went to go talk to this, this shorty or this girl for a second. And I turned around and he left. Like, he was gone. He came what? to Chicago. He was there for an hour. He drove from St. Louis to Chicago. That's like a five-hour drive. Did he just not feel comfortable? Like Yes. He was so, so, so out of place. Yeah. Socially, like, he didn't have anything to offer. That he, he didn't even go back to my house to get his clothes that he brought. He went, he drove back to St. Louis. He was an hour, he was already back on his way for 40, 30 minutes. When I was like, yo, where, hey, cuz, where you at? Right. He was home. Wow. And, 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 and I, talk, I was like, you know, about, and I was talking to her about this, you know, this whole experience of Saul. She's like, yeah, this not even, you know, this not even the, the creme of the crop or whatever. And I was like, that's my point. Right. This is my whole point. Like, this is, this is of course to you. And not saying every white person get access to this, but in a, if we're talking about a general thing, you know, more often than not in regards to how many get it versus how many don't get it and cultural understandings of, of communities, my, that was my whole point. Why did he feel so undervalued in this, this space wow. where he didn't feel like everybody else drinking 97% juice and 100% fucking, you know, all 100% fruit juice, and he and he feel like he had you know, uh, he had blue drink, you know, he had blue drink, and didn't have no, he didn't he and and that hurt, you know. So it was just that whole idea of uh, being able to change your your perspective, and uh, also and I'll take a step back and I'll and I'll end on here, the plug for me in this space. It's not about all uh, Web three community. It's about understanding the technology. And at the baseline, I created a proof of, proof of concept because I created a loyalty program, uh, which if you hold the NFT, when you get the NFT, it starts at 1%. You start as a fly on the wall, like we all have. And every 60 days, it charges up. And if you sell the NFT before it reaches 100%, so I tell people how long it takes to get to 97%, 12 months. But I don't tell people how long it takes to get become the sensei, I mean, the alchemist, which is 100%. It actually takes like six months. The reason why I didn't tell people because it's those that uncertainty in our career. Do you do 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 I do I uh do I uh do I uh leave the world of logic to go back to a nine to five because times are hard and I don't know where I'm going. And so if you sell my NFT before it reaches hundred percent, it reverts back to one percent on the secondary market. And if you hold it to hundred percent, it evolves to a third and final stage and it'll never go back to one percent ever again when you trade it. And that's like staying in the game. Like all my homies still in the game. My homie a DP for the shy. He 33. He don't even hold the camera no more. That's how. And it, and, and like just having these. Like I saw Chance DMing me way before he was Chance. You know what I'm saying? To put his record out. And you get to see all of these people go through the grind 
to become who the fuck they are. And when we get into this space, everything was so microwave and like, win Lamborghini, you dropped this 30 days ago. Why, where's the utility? I'm yeah. like, y'all have, y'all have never seen the inception of culture. And, uh, and it, like, it, it was just, so that's, that was kind of like the, and it was like, make it provocative, make it, and me having my advertising background, I humanized the journey of the plug because when people are like, oh, I feel like I'm a hustler. And, and you went from a hustler to an innovator because what do you do with the product you hustling? You start to innovate that product after it start moving. So it's like this whole thing where people felt like their Web3 journey or their life journey was in correlation to the plug project. So I said a lot and uh, yeah. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Now, okay, so our last question as mentioned is, what does what does culture mean to you? And you can speak about it generally, or you can speak about it as it pertains to Web3. Um, I think there's a lot you can riff on there, but very curious to hear your thoughts. Well, for me, culture is a combination of people and what they achieve and then what you see from it in all forms, food, music, art, fashion, uh, you know, because um, hip hop is a culture, but it's also an identity because by have a coat like we didn't have we didn't like you don't even know where you come from so like essentially the new form of like blackness you know uh that you know you can transform into anything else that's why the people in germany were able to resonate with it because we have quote-unquote freedom of speech here and we were so nuanced where uh prior forms of the culture was ripped from us that our frame of reference was essentially gone mm-hmm. and you had, like, a blank slate to speak about the things in your community that were absent of, oh, I'm from Ghana or I'm from Brazil or wherever you come from. And in part of that freedom of speech, you were able to create such a nuance where someone in, in Germany or in another country like Japan, where you're so fixated on Japanese culture or, or German culture uh, that you can't create something so vibrant and new that resonates with the shortcomings in other cultures because as soon as you start doing that shit in another country, you going to jail, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a different type of, you can't manifest something the way we were able to manifest it here. Uh, so uh, for culture, it's just something rich, something you you feel proud to be in, uh, whether it is pro something against something or for something, uh, you know, uh, but you know, even in Web three culture, uh, <laughs> uh, that was—it's interesting because one thing that I've learned, especially in my my tech background, when I started at the age of like I was going to land parties. You know what a land party is? No, tell me. It's a land party is. Um, I was such a. I was such a. I got my I got into design through gaming, um, through this thing called Clan Templates. So when I was fifteen, there was a forum called Clan Templates. You can still go there, clantemplates.com. It used to be a forum, it used to update like Twitter. It was crazy. And I would design websites and design like signatures and things for gaming profiles or communities. And uh and it's like esports, like people were competing in these things called game battles. Mm-hmm. A LAN party is a local network where everyone hooks up on the same network and play games together. So I would take 
computer, because uh, my dad used to build computers. He'd be on one side, and I'd be on the other side, you know, designing and playing games. I would t- you would take your computer to this LAN party, and everybody hook up on the same local network, and we would play games like Counter-Strike and World of Warcraft and everything together. And there'll be hundreds of people, thousands of people in one room playing games. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up is because that is a subculture that was unknown to most people. Right. And as we get into Web3, which is a difference between, there's a difference between the culture of Web3 and the technology of Web3. And even when you get into the culture of Web3, that even, we can get into an echo chamber where we think Twitter spaces and the bro culture, which I I think you're alluding to, is the standard. But really, if you take another, you can even just make another left. And if you if you don't make that left, you'll miss it like this. You have things like subcultures like counterparty. <laughs> Are you familiar with counterparty? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, you know, that like like people are like, Ordinals is new, Bitcoin is new. And it's like, bro, people were doing uh inscribing things on, you know, putting things on chain on Bitcoin ten years ago. Right. Uh, it was called, you know, counterparty. And that whole world of that ecosystem doesn't even care about what's happening on Ethereum. And then when you get into the whole uh, idea, like when I go to, like I've, I've been, again, when we talk about juice and, and access, I've been fortunate. I spoke, I've, I've launched my own Web3 conference called Sugoi, which means while awesome in Japanese, that was sponsored by Coexistence for MetaMask, where I, I was able to create a renaissance effect of people on ivory towers uh, from the big companies and people who get out the trenches to have, to be on the same stage, to have these conversations, to, a, to, to aid into what, the the our questioning culture the question in which we're talking about web3 culture because then we go to nft nyc or nft la it's it's a bit or even uh uh now you know you start to get people go over to art basil there's this certain they call it a cabal right every the cabal of people who who are just kind of jumping on each other's shoulders isolating everybody out uh because i definitely get invited into the room but i don't necessarily get invited to those tables because people see me like, oh, Logic, you worked at these places. You, Yeah, sure, but they not throwing me a ball of shit. You know? right, right. So I, I had to catch everything. I had to catch everything given to me because people know who the fuck I am. They still don't. I'm still not included in those those little situations. So, And the, the whole point of saying this is because we can get so caught up in. I, I tweeted the other day, we like fighting over scraps. Yeah. Uh, for the market and what we identify as Web3. But again, if you take now, if you take a right, uh, the people that's going to see NFT in LA and fucking NFT and YC, there's a whole nother, or even uh, uh, Gary V's VCon, that's a certain group of people. But then again, you, you, you can really miss this turn uh, if you're not looking for it. And then you see people that, that go to Cosensus and people that go to ETH Denver and yeah. Bitcoin Miami. And that's a whole nother pedigree of people who yeah. are in Web3 that don't give a shit about what people are talking about on Twitter spaces at the degree of what we concern ourselves with. And they are at consensus in E Denver, regardless if Bitcoin up 60K or down uh 50K. Yeah, and because they understand the the they're there for a different reason. And the reason why I say that is because again, we have to look at how big this world is. The reason why I brought up the the way I'm operating at land parties, people playing games on PlayStation, and I'm at land parties playing with people who are identifying with a whole nother culture that most people don't even know what's happening. And there's revenue circulating over here and, and the culture happening over here that is still gaming culture is just another spectrum, which is when we look at Web3, it's so deep, whether you get into DeFi 
and you get into uh like the ordinals right you got the ordinals people like oh my god it's so new but no bro that's advertising is it yeah. is it that you think web3 has multiple cultures or is it a melange a collection of cultures how are you seeing it is the in is that web3 culture i think i think it's a web3 there are cult there there are many many subcultures in web3 mm -hmm. you get to choose which part of oftentimes like, we, we one and we get so comfortable that that's all we see we go into the same rooms we listen to the same people and you feel like that's the cap but the whole point of web3 culture isn't the fucking pictures it's the technology so right. the issue we're running into especially for our community we're we're at this thing where we can't we go into these rooms they don't apply to us because now we're talking about floor we're talking about the floor and 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 how much liquid liquidity is in Ethereum or PFPs or whatever, but we need to be educating each other on how to solve problems with Web three to the point where the person outside doesn't even know they're using Web three. Right. So, well, I think that's that's how you that's how you get more people involved, right? I think if you beat them over the head with Web three, Web three, or NFT, NFT, very few people are interested in that. Uh, I think you have to show them how the technology is going to be beneficial to them in every in every aspect of their life and i also think that it's a it's a it's a ux problem too right i think that average people don't want to sign a smart contract with your wallet every 10 seconds do you know what i mean i don't think that's oh important. yeah no. um and so i think there's there's work to be done to onboard the next the next million or the next billion or whatever um but i think they yeah but that's say again no, onboarding is onboarding is not going to work. And the reason why I say that is because if you go to the this doesn't you go to an ATM, do you ever ask what operating system is using? No, you're just trying to get your money out. But that's what I mean. Yeah, right. Like I mean that like we need to put the technology needs to be in the background and the experience has to be in the foreground, if that makes sense. You yeah, know what we I mean? need to learn. Yeah, but yes, yes. So we're saying the same thing. So for me, it's about how do we educate people, but then it goes into the, you know, development, the lack of developers or whatever, but how do we reposition people's thinking on how to solve problems utilizing Web3? Because essentially Web3 yeah. is just tracking data. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, because that's why I was like, it's not necessarily about onboarding because that's scary uh, because people who are very savvy well, get- Why is it scary? Because people who are savvy get got on chain. Like you, people's wallets get drained. That's not scalable. My, I would never do that. And now we get into the idea of custodial or non custodial wallets and OX addresses. And the whole other category. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the thing is, how do we reposition that the conversation we have in, um, on Twitter spaces and whatever, however people community around how to solve problems utilizing the technology? Mm -hmm. That's, the onboarding thing is completely irrelevant at this point uh, because it's complicated and uh, I don't, it's not fun. So but that would have to be complicated, right? I don't think it has to be complicated. And I think, I think yeah. we need to lower that barrier to entry significantly. Yeah. Also give grace to the space because most people just answered sub two years ago. True. And true. From that time we've, we've come leaps and bounds because using ETH, using ETH in 2020, Trying to get Ethan spinning in in 2020, 2021 was atrocious. <laughs> and 
and trying to bridge Iggy to Polygon to Matic, uh, even in 2021, was scary and it took forever. And we've come so far, 100%. so far, yeah. Uh, since then, so uh, like AI, what was it? Not even like eight months ago, couldn't even do five fingers right now. It can do fingers like, all. It was like seven fingers. Right? Oh, that's 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 how fast and stuff. I think we just got to give it grace as well, and uh, we just be so hungry. It's like we need to sit our ass down and like drive slow, homie. Yeah, logic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I love everything that you bring to the space, your passion, your innovativeness, and and just everything else. So I really want to thank you for for sharing your. Uh, your understanding and your knowledge and your wisdom. I think a lot of people are going to get uh, lots of benefits from it. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful. That was my conversation with Julian Logic Gilliam. I hope that you found my conversation with Logic as inspiring as I did. I think some of the key takeaways from the conversation for me is to think big, to dream beyond what your mind can even conceive and to not be held back or limited by things like where you're from, where you currently are, your socioeconomic status, your race, your sex, your income, all of these things that can potentially hold us back from from dreaming beyond where we are now, even beyond geographical barriers. I think for me, those are some of the main takeaways in the conversation. I, I'd love to hear what you all think of the conversation. Please uh, tweet at us or send us an email at editor at theblackchain.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>